Thanks, Matt. <clears throat> if you read that text, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? Anyone? Makes... <laughs> no, you're, you're probably all still stunned by uh, what's there in the text. We're going to unpack a lot of that stuff. Um, but I want to begin this morning, uh, first of all, just by saying, glad to be here. My name is Trev. I am also one of the elders here at Urban Grace Church, and I have the privilege of regularly getting up here and delivering God's Word uh, to us as a community. And I want to start the, the, the morning by asking the question, which is the most important thing? Sorry, I'm just going to adjust my... There, Steve always gets mad at me. I don't have my microphone on correct. I want to ask the question, which is more important, the start of a race or the end, the finish? How you start a race or how you finish a race? What do you think? How you finish? Good, good answer. Uh, not a plant, by the way. That was, that was not solicited. How you finish. It's, it's interesting how we know this when we talk about races. Um, we know this when we talk about sports. We know this when we talk about even in business. Um, we know that the importance part of of most things in life is not necessarily how you start, but how you finish. And yet, I have to be honest with you, much of being a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, we concentrate on how people start. Much of how, when we talk about someone even being a Christian, we describe it by their starting experience, not necessarily their present or finishing experience. Um, you have to go back a little ways, but there's a great story in the, in the annals of, of Calgary history. Actually, a, a, a Blackfoot First Nations man named Blackfoot, um, he got that name, uh, his, his name was Deerfoot. Actually, it's, it's scabby dried meat is the true translation of it, no, no lie. Um, they went with Deerfoot, which I think is probably a wise idea. Um, but the story of Deerfoot is he's an incredibly fast runner. At the time, in, in the late 1800s, he actually was so well known that even in New York State, he was getting known for how fast he ran. Uh, but he was also, uh, honestly, a, a little bit arrogant, and he was being underpaid in one of his, um, in, in one of his races, and he was going to have this 10-mile race with another famous racer from England. They brought him over, and he was a little arrogant, or, or frustrated, maybe not even arrogant, but frustrated that he wasn't going to be paid what he should be paid, and so... Um, he kind of boycotted the race, and the race started, and the other guy had six laps on him, and he still finished the race in 54 minutes, 10-mile race. That's an incredibly fast rate when you stand there and don't start well. And it's, it's interesting how no one remembers the other guy. No one even remembers necessarily that he didn't start. You have to go you do have to go back into history and find out that he didn't actually start the race on time because that doesn't matter. It's how he finished it. It's how he finished the race. Today we're talking about a church, um, and the question mark is, how will this church finish the race? A question for the church from Jesus Christ himself is not, how did you start, or good job in starting well, or great job, and you had a, you know, you had a rockin' service the first day, you know, lots of people came to faith, you, things were going so well. The question Jesus has for this church today is, are you going to finish? Are you going to finish? And how are you going to finish? Are you going to finish well, or are you going to finish 
poorly. And actually, if you go historically through uh, these, all of these churches, that's a constant question you have when asked the question about churches, is there's really one place that still has a church that exists, and nearly all of these churches did not finish well because they did not pass on the truth of the gospel to the next generation. And that's always the question for us, whether it's we talk about as a church or whether we talk individually here this morning. The question is not, did you at one time decide that Jesus Christ was your Savior? The question is, did you decide that right now? And will you end your life deciding that? That's the question Jesus will ask. Because some of us actually, even when we think about Judgment Day, and in, in when we talk about whether or not we're Christians or whether we're disciples of Jesus, our answer is, back when I gave my life to Jesus. And that's your proof. But Jesus says, that, that's not how it works. How it works is, how are you now? And the question is, what will you be like on your final day? What will you be like on your final day? Where will your faith actually be? Okay, there's a lot in the text. You're like, I don't know how you got any of that out of the text. I know you do have to spend time with the text. But don't, don't worry, you could easily do it too. It's just reading a bunch of scholars, really, is what it is. But we wanna, I, I want to talk about three things today. I want to talk from the text about the fact that at the beginning this church and, and presently this church was faithful. We're going to talk about what it means to be faithful. But then we're going to talk about this church that seemed to have some sort of compromise go on within the church from two different directions. And we're, so we're going to talk about what it means to compromise. And then the third thing we want to talk about is what it means to conquer. Some of you say, I don't like that warlike language. Well, unfortunately, that's really the kind of language that you find in the book of Revelation. It's conquering kind of language. It's imagery. Um, but the Bible doesn't use like this idea that we war against people. It uses this idea that we war against a, a spiritual world and we have a spiritual battle that goes on. And so this conquering really is something that's, that's deeply spiritual, not physical, but deeply spiritual. And so we're going to talk about those three things, what it means to be faithful, what it means to compromise, and what it means to conquer. And there's a, a little bit of background that I think is helpful and, and to be honest, is, is somewhat fun in terms of the historical side. But if you see there in verse 1, and again, if you have a Bible and you're still not sure where we are, Revelation's the last book of the Bible. And you see there in verse 12, it says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now this whole book, the book of Revelation, is written to an exiled pastor who actually was uh, situated about, um, I think it's six, some 60 kilometers off the coast of what's now modern-day Turkey, which would, would have then been Asia Minor. So off this coast, there's Patmos right there, still an island that exists today. All that's there is a monastery um, because it's still a, a, a very, it's a pilgrimage of sorts. And this uh, first two chapters or first three chapters of the book of Revelation is written to seven churches and they kind of do this kind of loop. So if you actually were a pastor or a, uh, an, an, a, you, know, a, you were overseeing some of these churches, it, was, it would be almost as if you were going around a loop and making, um, making a journey to all these churches. And so they actually go in that order. They start with Ephesus last week. Matt brought us uh, what the, the message was to Smyrna and there's Pergamum up there. 
Smyrna is modern-day Izmir. I've actually been to modern-day Izmir. Um, it's a beautiful city. Um, I've actually been to Ephesus, but I have not been to Pergamum, unfortunately, because apparently Pergamum has amongst the best ruins that there is of these seven churches. So if you ever take a trip to Turkey and you see kind of some of the ancient ruins, that's probably, ironically, they said that's the one you don't want to miss. It's the one I missed, or one we missed. Um, but there's, there's some interesting dynamics to this particular city. And I want to take you through that, and then I'll come back to it later. Um, you see right away uh, that, that Jesus, who's the writer, the author of this letter to John, so it's like he's dictating to an angel who's dictating to John, and John's just writing this stuff down. So this isn't personal. This isn't for John. This is for the church that, that he, he got an email that he's supposed to forward on and forward on, right? And he cc's Pergamum. And Jesus writes and he says, um, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, now this is fascinating. Satan, Satan's throne, that, that seems to be like uh, the name of a band or something like that. It seems kind of crazy to, to call it Satan's throne. But if you get some ideas of what's going on in this whole city, it's just like cities today, uh, they have rivalries, right? We have rivalries. We have a friendly rivalry with Edmonton, right? Sports-wise, even economic-wise. Um, some people, when you say you're from Edmonton, are like, oh, it's, it's, you know, that's too bad. Jesus could save you too, you know, that kind of stuff. We poke fun at other cities, right? There's this kind of civic rivalry that goes on. And it's all in fun, right? In those days, it's, it, some of it's fun, some of it's not so fun. Some of it's a genuine rivalry. Uh, you know, if you go other places in the world and you actually call a sport, some of you may be not familiar with this sport. It's called soccer, uh, known as football in and, and the rest of the world, um, besides Canada. But they have major rivalries. And it's not fun. It's pretty intense. In fact, um, people die. People have died from some of these rivalries. And you can imagine that there's some kind of rivalry jockey for position. And, and what's happening in the world at this time is a lot of these areas are filling up full of Greek and Roman um, mythology, uh, theology, worship. And some of these places are filling full of economic prosperity. And so there's that kind of rivalry going on. Well, Pergamum wants to be like the center of everything that is not God. That's literally kind of what's going on. I'll explain what I mean. Uh, there was three places that some scholars think were part of this whole throne of Satan. Uh, this is actually a, a picture of modern day. It's called Bergama now. Down there, I should use my pen. Look at that. High tech right here. This is Bergama down here. Um, what would have been Pergamum at that time. So there are ruins still that go around. And, and this has not been touched and this is the top of the hill. So you can imagine the very top of the hill. And, and what was happening at the time is, is, is typically, in, in especially in, in Greek culture, they worshiped kind of unknown gods, gods that were like you couldn't see. There were gods that you were imaginary. And, and the Greeks kind of began to do some strange things along with the Romans. It, it kind of mixes up a little bit there. And they began to worship people rather than just kind of imaginary gods. And so this is actually an altar to the great Zeus, great Zeus. It's a pretty enormous kind of structure, and, and it, be, it began to be kind of where we, we worship the emperors. We worship the leaders. Can you imagine? We worship the leader of a political party. Can you imagine we actually did that? We built an altar to these people. 
That's what was happening. That's what was happening. Um, little explanation on how big that is. Uh, this is a recreation in the actual museum. So if you go to Bergama, you'll actually see this recreated in the museum. So these are the steps to the altar, and then the altar kind of went around there. So it was an enormous structure on top of the hill. So you can imagine when, when the people here, you know, I know where you live, and it's like the throne of Satan. I mean, it's a direct dig on this huge, enormous complex on the hill that's dedicated to everything that's not God. It's dedicated to the awesomeness of a human person. Um, there's another uh, place as well. It, it, um, Pergamum was a place that they, they welcomed. In fact, they were proud of this, that they were, they were chosen as, as one of these places. They also had a thing called the Temple of Asclepion. Am I saying that right? Asclepion. Um, and this temple was dedicated to health. I mean, it's so far removed from our day and age, where people worship their health, right? We can't really relate to that today. People are in love with their health, and they'll do anything to keep it. Yeah, I know, it seems so far-fetched. I know, just try to relate for just a moment. So actually, it's, this, it's, it's like a glorified spa. And in those days, health was deeply tied into what you believed spiritually. So if you went to this spa and somebody, you know, put hot stones on your back or you, you didn't have arthritis anymore, or you went in the pool and had some great healing, then you were to sacrifice to the god of Asclepion. Now here's the kicker. Guess what the symbol was for this temple? A serpent. A serpent. Typically, the symbol used throughout the story of God to symbolize Satan. In the very beginning of, the, of God's story, it's the serpent who tempts Eve first. It's the serpent who runs into trouble. It's actually why if you see on medical symbols, you'll see a little serpent around some sort of a stick or sword. That's where that comes from. So you, you can imagine with these two things, I don't think you have to use much more of your imagination to go, yeah, that, that seems like a city that's dedicated to everything that's not God. It's dedicated to people's health. It's, it's dedicated to people's power. It's dedicated to a, a kind of a whole mythological influence. And it becomes essentially over time the center for emperor worship. Like they, this is the city that, you know, when, when they look back at history and they say, well, who's responsible for starting to worship people instead of starting to worship gods, small g gods. They would say Pergamum's probably top five, maybe top three, maybe top one. And when Jesus says this to the church in Pergamum, he says, I know where you live. I know what that city is like. I know it essentially is a throne room for Satan. I know it is a, a city that's based upon the worship of everything else other than me. And so as we begin, what does he say? I know where you live. I know, I know all of these things. He says, I also know you've held fast to this. I know you're faithful. Now, if you can imagine, like this, this actually is something I think we can relate to because we feel kind of pressures all over the place from our culture, don't we? To conform, to tell us that we are, you know, sh should be, uh, do these sorts of things. I mean, literally, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to just point fingers or, 
or, or because the, um, what's, what's that called, the voting thing, the big vote? Yeah, election, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm real political. Election's coming up, but we, we have someone in power who says that if you believe these certain things, you're essentially un-Canadian. That's pressure to conform to a different set of values, regardless of whether you even disagree with it. You can't actually say we're in a religiously free country if by believing certain things, you become un-Canadian. That's, in my mind, dangerously close to not religious freedom. I'll just put it that way. But I'm not even saying anything about that. Honestly, it doesn't matter to me where you vote. All that I'm saying is that we live in a country where there is going to be increasing pressure to conform to the values of our culture that may or may not believe or be rested in God. There's going to be enormous pressure, and I believe there already is. So we know how this feels. And here's what Jesus says to that particular church. You held fast. You were faithful. You were faithful to this. So our question is, are we going to be faithful to Jesus Christ as our Savior in the coming days, in the coming years, in the coming months, in the coming decades? Are we going to be faithful? When someone says you're essentially un-Canadian for believing these things, are we going to shrug our shoulders and say, I guess I really want to be Canadian? Or will we be like the church in Pergamum that says, no, no, that's not true. No, there is a God, and his name is Jesus. No, we are sinful from birth. That's what the Bible says. That's what the story of God says. We need a Savior. No, we're not ultimately worried about what you will do to us. We're only worried about what our Savior will think of us. It's a constant question we'll have in our spiritual lives. Jesus actually points to this church in Pergamum that does a remarkably Great job of holding fast to the point where they actually have uh, someone in history, Antipas. We don't know anything else about this guy, but we do know that this guy chose death over conformity. That would have happened. Matt, Matt uh, brought us uh, the story of the church from Smyrna last week where it, they would have probably lost their jobs if they would have claimed Christianity. They certainly got poor over it. And even today, there's kind of that, that pressure. Christians don't really belong in this particular arena of leadership. You can't bring your faith into things that you say. You can't bring your faith into school. You can't bring your faith into your politics. You can't do any of that stuff. Who says that? Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the most important. I'm the one that really ultimately matters. This message is a good reminder to us of what that means, but he doesn't just end there. And, and like every letter that is always said in these, in these seven churches, there's some positives and there's some negatives. Or, or I should say uh, six out of seven, there are positives and neg negatives. Blech. There's one church where it's just positive. And so... Where do we move? How, how do we be faithful? That's maybe your question. How do I be faithful then? In the face of opposition, how do I be faithful? And I've got two, two sentences for you. First one is, 
There are a lot of steps to being faithful, but I'll tell you one thing, it will never happen by accident. You will never accidentally be faithful to Jesus. You will never wake up one, one day, 10 years from now and go, I wasn't really paying attention and I have a very faithful pursuit of Jesus for these last 10 years. It will not happen by accident. That's the positive way to say it. What's the negative way to say it? You'll drift if you're not intentional. You'll drift. Some of you are already starting there and you don't necessarily even realize that. But being faithful is not something that ever happens by accident, ever. It is something that is always about intentional. What's the other thing I would say about faithfulness? It also won't happen immediately. Some of you are like, I have been faithful for 30 seconds. And you should laugh about that because there's no such thing as being faithful for 30 seconds. If your boss says, you know, tell me about your loyalty to the company, you said, I have been here working hard all week. They would say, that's not loyalty. That, it, it's not difficult to be loyal for a week. What's loyalty? Well, I don't know the actual time, but I do know that it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen immediately. That being faithful, being loyal to Jesus is not something that you can just monitor in a matter of hours or even weeks, but actually probably more likely months and years. It's a good, good reminder for us. What does it mean to be faithful? This is a church that has been faithful for a number of years, facing this kind of persecution. But then Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Uh-oh. When Jesus says that, better pay attention. I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of, of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat uh, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality, right? Don't need to explain this at all. It make lands perfectly, right? Of course it doesn't. Unless you know very well the story of Balaam and Balak, uh, maybe some of you might know the story of Balaam because he actually was spoken by God uh, through a donkey. And when we were kids, we obviously used another word for donkey and said that was hilarious, right? I won't say it um, this morning because... It won't get edited properly. But the, this, this is how the story goes. It's actually the story, Balaam is a, a, a pagan seer, meaning he's a fortune teller. He'd be a, a lot like today's New Age tarot card readers. He'd be a lot like that. Not someone who necessarily believed in God, but actually believed in the supernatural, understood the supernatural, and God wanted to send a message to his people through someone who did not really believe in him or focus on him. His name was Balaam. Balak was also not part of God's chosen people of Israel. Balak was a, a king who wanted to curse Israel and defeat him in war. And so Balak thought, I will get a pagan seer to tell me fortune. In fact, because he's got all this supernatural power, I'll get Balak, Balaam to send a curse on Israel and then we can defeat them in war and we can take over. Seems like a pretty good plan if you're Balak. So that's what he does. He calls up Balaam. He says, hey, I'll pay you a lot of money or I'll pay you some money, I guess. And I want you to curse Israel. And then when you've cursed Israel, 
um, we'll go in and defeat them. And actually what Balaam says is, it looks, it looks, he looks really noble when he says it too, by the way. He's like, no, God didn't say for me to curse Israel. Some scholars think he's actually holding out for money. Could be very possible. He's just not getting paid enough. He's like, he, he's, doing, he's doing the holdout, right? Hey, God hasn't told me yet to speak to these people and curse them. So Balak is like, okay, what's this going to take? More money? Okay, I've got more money. So he gets more money and he goes, okay, now I really want you to curse them and, and look at all this stuff. And Balaam says, no, God still hasn't told me to curse Israel. Well, Balak's like, what's this going to take? So he travels, instead of sending all these riches ahead and messengers, he, he travels himself and he goes and actually talks and he says, now, look at all this stuff. Will you curse Israel? And Balaam actually says, no, I'm not going to do it. I've been talking to this God of Israel and he won't allow for this. And then in the process on the way, uh, there's actually a donkey in the middle of the road that's preventing Balaam's um, from going through this road and the donkey talks. That's where the story kind of is, is kind of hilarious because Balaam in the story doesn't actually like notice that the donkey is talking to him. He just talks back at the donkey and says like, what's, what's the deal? Kind of weird if you saw someone talking to a horse and the horse talked back to you and then you just continue talking to the horse. Would that not seem a little weird? But that's the story. Well, you say, well, where's, where's the problem in this? Well, Balaam appears really spiritual. But we find on the very next chapter, and you can read this story for yourself in Numbers chapter 22 to 24. And in chapter 25, we see that Balaam doesn't actually curse Israel by cursing him in front for Balak. What Balaam does is he said, I tell you what, start having sex with whoever you want at the temple gates. Start eating food that's sacrificed to idols and you will defeat these people. If you can kind of infiltrate through the side end, if you can just get these people off track of obeying the God that, that calls them to a certain level of obedience, you will end up cursing them. And that's exactly what happens. And Israel gets sidetracked. They get persuaded somehow to change their morality. They, they literally are persuaded to commit both spiritual adultery and physical adultery. That's kind of the best way to put it. You know, you, you say, well, well, what do you mean by physical adultery? I mean, like, the Bible always uses this word sexual immorality, and it's really a big bracketed phrase for anything outside of a sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. One husband, one wife. Any sexual activity outside of that. Don't use your imagination, but it probably includes the thing that you're trying to find an excuse for. Always. There's no exceptions to that. What's spiritual adultery? Well, it's, it's this idea that, well, what's the harm in like just throwing a few sacrifices some of these gods way? Like maybe it won't be such a big deal if I take this particular part of this particular religion and, and just use it. This even happens sometimes to us today when people say, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you, and, and they're not necessarily praying to the same God, right? 
We often say that, even publicly. People say our thoughts and prayers are with so-and-so, even though who they pray to has actually never been defined. The spiritual adultery is just saying, no, God's not really exclusive like you say he is. He doesn't mind if you dabble in some of these other religions. So what does Jesus say? I know that took a long time, but what does Jesus say to the church? He says, here's what I have against you. Some of you have bought into this. Some of you bought into this philosophy. That, that some teachers are saying that it doesn't matter what you do sexually, that it doesn't matter really what you do spiritually as long as you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior. It doesn't matter how you act or how you think. He says, some of you have bought into this. And he says, and I hate it. I hate the works of the Nicolaitans. That was the group of teachers that were teaching this. And you know what? There are still Nicolaitan groups out there. No, we don't call them Nicolaitan groups. We might call them liberal. We might call them soft on morality. We might even call them high on grace and low on works. Because there are groups and there are churches and there are preachers and there are people who will teach you that it doesn't matter how you think as long as you believe in the God of grace. That's not true. Yes, we believe in a God of grace. But no, it's not true that it doesn't matter what you think or how you act. It's not true that it doesn't make a difference what you do sexually. It doesn't have any effect on anyone else because people will tell you that. And Jesus says, this is what I have against you. You think that doesn't matter. You think I won't notice. It's interesting how he says it as well too. He says, a stumbling block. He says, these are some of the things I, I have against you. Some of you hold to this teaching. So the whole church isn't in on this. Like there's, this, there's a particular group of people within that particular church that are not really paying attention to how they live morally, how they live sexually, how they live spiritually. They're not paying attention to it. He says, here's what I have against you. Some of you have bought into this philosophy. He said, the other group tolerates it. You both have problems. This group compromises their lifestyle. This group compromises the church. It's a tough word, isn't it? And I know it's tough because I know some stories and I know some of the things and the way people think because this is so easy for us to think. But some of you think what you do sexually in this church doesn't have an impact on the rest of the church. Some of you think this is off limits. It's personal. It's, it's, you know, that's the old way. No, it's not. This is in the New Testament. This is after Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This is after the church has started. This is for us. Some of you say, well, what I do with my personal body and my personal mind has no effect on anyone else. Will you not hear that? As a sermon from our culture, they will say things like, your sexual preference has nothing to do with anything else. And Jesus says, that is not true. You've bought into this teaching that separates these two things. 
Some of you say, well, I, I, I look, but I don't touch. And that has nothing to do with the people in my church. That's not true. Have you ever thought, and this is the hard word for us, have you ever thought that my personal sin is having effect on my church? My lack of attention to my personal spiritual life is something Jesus may be disciplining our church for. And nobody knows about it. It doesn't get more intense than that. Here's the other side. Jesus said, when you see this and it's tolerated, I'm not any happier with that. We usually have this kind of mantra that says, well, it's really none of my business. This text says what happens in our church is our business if we're part of this church. So how do you get there? How do you get to that point? How do we get there? How do we get to a point where we're just not really paying attention to this stuff? Here, I'll go back to some really radically new things that I have never said before. First thing, it won't happen by accident. This is how it starts. This is how it starts. With a little decision here or there. When we've had this, this Ashley Madison thing has kind of blown this up in our world. Right? In North America. And, and our big question is, wow, how does someone get from having like a healthy marriage and a, and a Bible professor at a, a Bible Christian university, how do they get to this point? And I tell you, it did not happen in a couple of hours. It happened through a series of compromises over time that was not by accident. It happened where one day a conversation was had with a coworker where it was like, wow, I like what they're wearing. And the next day it was like, I'm going to take my break at the same time as this person so I can talk with them. So I'm not really happy with my marriage at home and, you know, I need some personal emotional fulfillment anyway. So it's harmless, right? I'm not, I'm not, we don't, we're not having babies together. We're not sleeping in the same bed. It's totally harmless. And then the next day it's like, well, maybe I can send a, an email. And you ask anyone who gets into that position, you ask anyone even who's, in the, who's been a serial murderer, they will tell you this is a series of compromises that eventually was out of hand. It's not a one-day thing. It's not a one-decision thing. It's a series of personal decisions. What else? I guess you can guess what I'm trying to say. It won't happen immediately either. And your first decision is probably going to be harmless. And you're going to think it's harmless. And you're going to think no one notices. Because that's how we think, right? I mean, there's very few television shows that were better at depicting, depicting this than the show Seinfeld. Anyone ever watch Seinfeld? Okay, no one will admit it, I get it. It's amazing how this show over time was like, the first, the first lie was like really minimal. It was like a little white lie. 
was like, hey, sorry, I wasn't home, and they were home. And then it, was, it turns into, you know, someone drops by and finds out they're actually home and they're not home, and they said they weren't home, and, and so now they're mad, and these people break up, and this person hates this person, and by the end of the show, it's just out of control. I mean, it's done in a very funny way, but you've got this one character, George, who's constantly just covering his tracks. He's covering his lie. And it's, it's like his, his full-time job is to cover his tracks because he compromised in one place at the very beginning of the show. But that's us. That won't be, I can click on that. It's no big deal. I can say hello there. It's no big deal. I can... It's not that big of a deal if I, if I don't pray about this. It's not that big of a deal that I really read my Bible, is it? Do you and I know that one day of not doing it turns into two days, turns into three days, turns into weeks, turns into months, turns into years? With something that's good for us. <laughs> but Jesus is saying to this church, watch and do not buy into that because it doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen immediately so then how does he say what does he say he says repent repent means to turn around and say okay I need help I'm not in charge here I, I, I need help and this is where we get to the end of the race this is where we get to the end of the race and he says if not now, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Like sometimes when you see that, you feel like that's actually about God's word. Sword and the word of God actually are, are two metaphors that seem to be really closely paralleled. But this isn't that kind of understanding of the sword. This is actually one day I'm going to come and I'm going to bring judgment. And I will war against them. And at the end of the book of Revelation, you see Jesus Christ. He's on a white horse. He's got a big sword. He's got a whatever huge tattoo on his leg that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will defeat anyone that opposes him. He's not described as a pansy in Revelation. He is described as the King of Kings who will go to war against those who are opposed to him. He will war against those who ignore him, who don't think he's that big of a deal. He will explain to them, every knee's going to bow to me. It doesn't matter what you believe, your knee is going to bow to Jesus Christ one day. The only question is, will you do it willingly or defiantly? So Jesus says, you don't pay attention to this, watch out. One day I'm coming. One day you're going to see. One day your faith will be sight. And you will see me riding on the clouds on an enormous horse with power, bringing judgment, making everything right, punishing every sin for every sin. And he says, to the one who conquers, this is what I will say. When he said, to the one who's faithful in the end, to the one who does not buy into this, but trusts me and follows me 
each and every day, he says, you will receive the hidden manna. That's always a metaphor in the Bible for sustenance. Manna is always used as a metaphor for like, God will provide. In fact, it's, it's the, the name manna actually could be translated, what is it? And the answer to it is, it's, it's a daily provision from God of bread, from an old story in the Bible. And to the one who conquers, I will give everything they need. And to the one who conquers, I will give him a new white stone. That doesn't mean much to you, but in those days it did. If you were ever in the court of law and you sat before a jury of your peers and you were declared not guilty, they handed you a white stone when you left the court. What did that white stone say? Not guilty. Not guilty. They also handed it to those who won races. At the end of the race, you win a white stone that says, you won. You are a victor. It's like a trophy cabinet. I mean, it seems a little rustic for us, right? We got our trophies with, you know, the big eagle wings and the golf clubs and, you know, the footballs and all that kind of stuff. They handed the white stone. It seems a little diminishing, but that's what it was. You give them a white stone, I won. I won. Jesus says, when we're faithful and we refuse to compromise, when he comes riding in on his white horse, here's what he gives to those who trust in his name. A white stone. Hidden manna. Sustenance. Victory. Declared not guilty. That doesn't even make sense. Because we have all sinned. And when I describe this kind of compromise, I know that's also within my life. Many places where it, it, it's like the first time you compromise doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. And we know that we've compromised God. We know that we need help deep inside us. We take a real look at our lives. And in his love, Jesus says, if you believe that I am who I say I am, if you believe that I'm the, really the only one that could ever give you a white stone and declare you not guilty, if you believe that I'm the only one that could ever bring ultimate satisfaction and sustenance to your life, and if you're faithful through your whole life, he says, because you believe in me and my name. I'll, I'll give you a new name. I'll give you a new name. That's what the text says. Give them a new name. Whenever the Bible actually says that, that new name always means a new identity. It means a new job description. And I know there are some here this morning, you need a new name. You need Jesus Christ himself to visit you. And you need to hear from him declared not guilty because some of you are feeling terribly guilty right now. Some of you have a lot of work to do in your life. We all do. Some of you have been completely ignorant of your personal spiritual life, not thinking it has any effect on our church. And you need to hear that in the love of Jesus... By believing and trusting in his name, 
He declares you, when you walk out of the courtroom, not guilty. In fact, not even not guilty. He says, watch, I will pay the price for you. I won't just declare you not guilty. I will take the punishment that you should have had on my shoulders. I will serve the penalty that you deserve. I will take all of your garbage, all of your junk, all of your disobedience, all of your hopelessness, all of the ways you've been distracted to serve someone else other than me, and I'll pay for it. The bill's on me. And that's exactly what Matt said at the very beginning. He takes it upon himself, he hangs on a cross, and he says, it is finished, no more. No one's ever going to pay the price again. I paid it. I'll call the band up now and we close. There's obviously so much to this rich text. And we literally can't get into all of it. But as we close, one thing I want to invite you to do is just respond in worship. Not necessarily by singing. Worship includes everything in your life. But you, you and I have an opportunity to respond to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords now. We have an opportunity to bow our knee, even just metaphorically, now. This is why the word to us, I think, is so important for today. And by coming forward and partaking, this is all you're saying. You're saying, I bow my knee to the Savior of the world, the King of Kings, the Servant King, the Lord of Lords, who paid the price for me. This is why we say this is not just for those who are thinking about Christianity. This is for those who actually believe this. And we want to invite you to respond by that. We also take the time to respond in all different kinds of ways. We pass around the plate not to just gather money, but to give you a chance to respond to the generous grace of Jesus Christ. As we participate in this as a family. And so take the time to respond to Jesus this morning.